Would you pray with me? Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Living under the reign of Christ. Today we have much to celebrate. We have the, the, the baptisms of Jace and Ander coming up in just a few minutes, just one day after their official adoption. And we're also celebrating Christ the King Sunday today. For those of you who may not be too familiar with the Christian liturgical calendar, the new Christian liturgical year begins with the first Sunday of Advent, which is next Sunday. And the final Sunday of the Christian liturgical year is called Christ the King Sunday, which is today. Each year on the last day of the year, we reflect on what it means to consider Christ as our King. So last Thursday in the men's Bible study that Fred Hansowitz was leading, he led an interesting discussion on what it means to us when we call Christ as King versus other people who have received that title as King over time such as maybe King Charles III, who recently got it of Great Britain, or even uh, Emperor Augustus of Rome in the first century. For King Charles, the title is much more symbolic than it had been in the past. He can't unilaterally, unilaterally make decisions which people of Great Britain are obliged to follow. But this was not the case for kings and emperors in the first century. In the past, kings had a great deal of power. When they made a decision, it was final. There was no appeal process. If a person went before a king, they took their life in their own hands, and the circumstances could change dramatically in just a moment. And there was no turning back. There's a story of King Solomon being approached by two women who both claimed to be the birth mother of a particular child. One was obviously lying, trying to steal the child. But there was no way to tell the difference between the two women. So, King Solomon told the women he had decided that he was going to split the child between the two of them. Literally, he was going to cut the child in half. He was the ultimate authority. So there was no way to appeal that decision, even if it was completely irrational. The woman who was lying simply resigned herself to the fact that she would not get the child and she simply walked away. The other mother, the real mother, frantically pleaded with King Solomon to spare her child's life and give the child to the other woman because she would rather see her child go to another person than to see her child killed. King Solomon, knowing that the real mother would try to save her child's life, was able to discern who the true parent was in this case. And he gave the, the child back to the child's real mother, safe and sound. The trick worked because kings had that kind of authority at that time. Everyone knew that such an outlandish decision could be made by the king and it would be carried out. This is the understanding of what it means to be king when the phrase Christ the king was adopted. It meant a total devotion to Christ. Everything Jesus said was considered a proclamation that must be followed. All of his desires were expected to be met with satisfaction. And he was expected to be honored and praised at all times. The Gospels teach us what he proclaimed 
about the right ways to journey through life and what to expect when life ends. They also tell us what he desired, a world filled with love where the thirsty are giving something to drink, the hungry are fed, a stranger is welcomed, the naked are clothed, the sick are cared for, and the prisoners are visited so that they know they are not forgotten. And though he did not seek his own praise, we honor and praise him all the time. These are the kinds of things that have a parallel to the kingship that we know of in this world and that was known in the first century. But there are also many differences between the reign of kings of old and the reign of Christ. For one, nobody is forced to acknowledge Christ as king. In other kingdoms, refusal to acknowledge the person on the throne as king or queen was considered treasonous and result in terrible punishment, such as crucifixion. But God does not operate that way. We are not threatened with violence if we refuse to acknowledge Christ as our Lord and Savior. Instead, we are encouraged to accept Christ because of who he is and what we gain from being part of his kingdom. If we choose to accept Christ as our king, there are consequences that we can expect to experience, which our scripture reader, a scripture reading from the letter to the Colossians this morning tells us about. We are made strong by his strength. We share in the inheritance of the saints. We are rescued from the power of darkness, and we receive forgiveness for our sins which brings us into right relationship with God, allowing us to be part of his kingdom. These are all benefits of living under the reign of Christ that the first century Christians discovered through their experience of Jesus, both as he walked the earth with them and later touched their lives after his resurrection. This letter to the Colossians was thought to have been written around 65 CE, just a couple of decades after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Nobody had witnessed anyone like him before, and they were, quite, they were not quite sure how to describe him or the events that surrounded him. Even today, there are many of us that come to church each Sunday who aren't quite sure how to describe Jesus and what happened in his life. The metaphor of king seems to be an appropriate way to think of Jesus, but every metaphor has its limitations. There are other ways presented in our passage that also help us to understand who he was and is today. He is the image of the invisible God. He was the firstborn of all creation, and all things in heaven or on earth were created through him including thrones, dominions, rulers, or powers. The worldview in the first century included the possibility of supernatural beings, both dangerous and benevolent. And Paul's point was that all of the dimensions of reality we could possibly imagine were created through Christ. He is the cornerstone of the cosmos that holds all versions of reality together. He is the first to be resurrected. He's also the head of the church, which serves as the body of Christ here on earth. Fullness of God dwelled in him and he walked, as he walked the earth, 
and continues to dwell in him now as he guides us through the Holy Spirit today. It is through his crucifixion and resurrection that we are able to be reconciled to God and have our relationship with God restored. These are many of the facets of Christ that help us to understand who he was and who he is today. Yet none of them can fully contain them on him, contain him on their own. He came as Jesus of Nazareth to this earth in a particular period of time and set in motion a movement that has guided humanity for thousands of years. And those of us who consider ourselves his disciples or students continue to follow his teachings today. One of those teachings is related to the gift of baptism. Jesus gave us the meaning behind the ritual of baptism as we understand it today, but it was started sometime before Jesus. The passage read from the Gospel of Luke this morning, called the Benedictus, is a song sung by Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah was made mute for many months by the angel Gabriel, because Zechariah didn't believe him when Gabriel told him that he would have a son. See, he and his wife were getting on in years at that time, and having a child didn't seem possible for him. But Zechariah came to the understanding that that prediction was true, and he agreed to name his son John, as suggested by Gabriel, even though none of his relatives, or he himself, of course, carried that name. At this point, Zechariah regained his ability to speak, and filled with the Holy Spirit, he began to sing this song that we read this morning. In it, he predicts that John would be called a prophet of the Most High because he would prepare the ways of the Lord and give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. This is exactly what John the Baptist did. And he was also the one to baptize Jesus in the Jordan River. This is a ritual which we celebrate today and which is an initiation into the body of Christ, the church. In our baptism, we make a covenant with God, where God provides us guidance through the teachings of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Our part of the covenant is to follow Jesus' teachings and watch for the Spirit's movement in and around us. Although we may fail to live up to our part of the covenant at times, we can receive forgiveness through grace and re-enter into a relationship with God. But God never fails. God never fails to deliver God's part of this covenant. This is why we only baptize here once in a person's lifetime. God does not need to make the covenant over and over. We just need to be reminded of our part of the covenant. We need to be reminded to let Christ reign in our lives so that we can fulfill the promises we made to resist evil and justice and oppression through the freedom and power that God grants us as members of the body of Christ. When we're a little too young to make the decision for ourselves, we rely on our parents or guardians to answer for us with the understanding that 
They will lead us in Christian love along with you, the congregation. And when we're old enough to make our own decision, we can seek to confirm our baptismal covenant, covenant through the ritual of confirmation, which several of our youth are preparing for now, today. Today, we are pleased to receive Jace and Ander into the church through their baptism with their mother, Samantha, answering for them. I now invite the Marins to come forward for the baptism. 